Our second scripture passage is from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, be aware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The word of the Lord. After many weeks, it feels like many weeks, we come to the end of Ecclesiastes. Solomon, the writer, gives us this. In verse 11, he writes, The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Ecclesiastes as a whole is a book of wisdom, and Solomon says the collective wisdom before God and from God is like a goad. A goad was actually a pointed stick that was used by a shepherd in order to poke the cattle along. It kept them moving, that kept the sheep going in the right direction. You would use the goad to guide the sheep away from danger, to keep them away from cliffs or thicket or other dangers, and you would use it to get them in the right direction so they would make it to water to good pastures to eat from, places to rest. And that's the idea that Solomon is after. He says, this this collective writings, these Ecclesiastes writings, are like a goad guiding you away from danger and towards wisdom. And if you look at not just Ecclesiastes, but before this, if you've been with us since January, we've been in wisdom literature. We started in Job and we moved to Ecclesiastes. And they function as a goad to us as sheep, guiding us away from danger and towards wisdom. And the idea is this. Job and Ecclesiastes ask the big questions. What do we do with suffering and evil and injustice? How do we face death? Where do we find purpose and meaning and identity? And I would say if your worldview does not have ample answers for suffering and evil and death and purpose and meaning, then you need to find another worldview. And if your Christianity is not thick enough to give you the answers, dig deeper. Keep digging deeper. Because my experience is that I think Christianity can and does answer these bigger questions with intellectual integrity, but also with a narrative of hope. It starts from a creator, giving us purpose and meaning. It wrestles with good and evil and lays it before a judge so we don't have to take justice in our own hands. And it faces death with the hope of resurrection and redemption and eternal life so that the ultimate end is not the ultimate end in God's eyes. But as we look at the whole book of Ecclesiastes, 
Solomon, as we've been looking at, has been on this path, trying to understand purpose and meaning and facing death. And he's been on this path of observation. We've talked about it multiple times. It's the empirical path. What can I see and observe? And what does he do? We've talked about it, right? He observes life, life as he is able to live it, and tries to find meaning and purpose in the life he's living. He explores success and wealth, and he has a lot of success and wealth. Can I find meaning in my successes and in my wealth? He goes down the road of pleasure, and he holds nothing back. Whatever you could imagine, he has, and he looks for meaning there. He tries work and family. Is there purpose and meaning big enough in work and family? Learning and knowledge, which he mentions in verse 12 of our passage, and even goodness. And the problem is, he's looking at them apart from God. He's looking at them from the secular mindset, from the atheist mindset. Can I, by living life of its own and through reason and observation, come to meaningful conclusions about why we are here? And the problem is, he wrestles with some of the things any of us who are thoughtful would wrestle with, which is how can there be such injustices in the world? things like poverty and tragedy. And even though he has some conclusions that wisdom and work and family are better than pleasure and wealth, yet in the end, what does he say? It's the foolish who in the end seem to succeed. So why be wise? And he wrestles with the reality of death, with the idea that one day even all of his great achievements will be forgotten. That at some point, whether it's hundreds of years from now or a billion years from now, when the sun is gone, you will be forgotten. Even you, Solomon, will be forgotten. And his conclusion, the conclusion of Ecclesiastes, is vanity, vanity. Or as the NIV puts it, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Solomon lived about 1,000 B.C. He was about 2,500 years, a little more than that, before the Enlightenment, and yet this was the Enlightenment's approach. Try and figure out, by observation alone, why we exist. And for a couple of hundred years, they sought that. 1700s, 1800s, and by the 1900s, the modern philosophers came to the same conclusion that Solomon did. They should have just read Ecclesiastes. The modern philosophers said there is no way by observation alone to prove right and wrong. There is no way by pure reason to determine what's good and what's evil. It's all subjective. There's no way to determine why we exist. Therefore, there is no purpose and meaning. The empirical search for truth and meaning, the search without God, always ends up fruitless. You have to have intellectual integrity and honesty to get there. Now, in the end, Solomon does not leave us purely in the negative. He doesn't solve all the issues. It's almost like at the very end, he just gives this throwaway line, sums it all up. But what he does is he points us to God. He says, I've tried every way apart from God. Let me tell you, go back to God. Start there. Finish there. And he gives it to us in verses 13 and 14. The end of the matter, he writes, 
All has been heard. Okay, I've lived my life. I've looked at it all. The end of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commands. Keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Fear God. That's really the root of what he says. Fear God. It's the sum of the book of Ecclesiastes. You can look everywhere else. Fear God. Now, if we're going to look today at philosophers and academics in the university setting, or if you go into popular thinking, celebrities or daytime television hosts or self-help books, here's what they will tell you. They will say that you need to discover meaning on your own. You have to discover meaning on your own. You have to create your own purpose and reality, chart your own course. But if there is no God, if there is no God, then Nietzsche is right. There's no absolute truth, no inherent meaning. But basically what the modern world is telling us to do is to live a charade. Pretend as if life has meaning. Go ahead and create it on your own. Work and family, those things are important. Therefore, I have a happy life. But apart from God, it's a charade. There is no inherent purpose or meaning. There is nothing after this life. It's basically you're on the Titanic, and everyone in the modern world says, enjoy the buffet. It's really good. The music's great. Why don't you listen to it? But you know the ship is going down. What good is a full stomach when you're under a frozen sea? Go ahead, discover meaning on your own, but have the honesty to admit that it's a charade. You're just trying to inoculate yourself from the uncertainty of a world without meaning and from a death that ends it all. But if the Bible is right, there is a God. We may not be able to prove it from observation alone, But if the Bible is right, we don't choose and discover truth for ourselves. We find it when we find God. And that's why Solomon calls us to fear God. What does that mean? You've probably heard this before. Fear God is not be afraid of God. It is acknowledge God. Acknowledge God at all times. Not just on Sunday morning or in parts of my life, but always acknowledging God in every aspect of my life. In my work, in my kids, my finances, in what I choose to do with my time, acknowledge God at all times. To fear God is to let God determine my worldview. My purpose and identity are found in God. To fear God means I worship and follow God and not myself. So are we doing this? Or do we tend to discover meaning on our own? How would you even figure out if you're doing this? You may say you're a Christian, but are you actually living this out? Or are you following the modern world's idea of discovery? Everyone's free to do what they want. Or is God the God? How do you know if you're rightly fearing God? Well, Solomon gives us the next part of his instruction. It's not just fear God, it is keep his commandments. Keep his commandments. You know what this does? This actually exposes the root of our God. 
the call to follow God and to keep his commands is always tied in scripture to fear and faith in God. The root of all sin is not moral code breaking. It's not breaking the moral codes of God. The root of all sin is unbelief. It's false belief. Adam and Eve's sin was trying to be God on their own. It was disbelieving and distrusting God and saying, I will choose to find it my own way. The root of sin is that something or someone is my functional savior and my true master. How does Jesus sum up the whole of the law? What does he say? Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Why does Jesus put the two together? Because Jesus seems to think you can't do one without the other. Only when God is your first love are you able to love your neighbor more than yourself. Otherwise, what's truly your God will drive you to serve yourself and not love your neighbor. And this is why in Exodus, when the Ten Commandments are first given, it starts with a command that trumps all commands. We see it in Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3. God speaks to Moses and the people of Israel, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, I am your God, your Lord, and your Savior, Redeemer. Therefore, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods. And then he goes on to talk about the other things, right? Adultery and stealing and lying. Honor your mother and father. But as pretty much every commentator, Jewish or Christian, will acknowledge, it all starts with the first commandment. You don't break commandments six, seven, eight, and nine without first breaking the first commandment. If I don't acknowledge God as my Lord, I will acknowledge something else, and then I will go down the road of breaking numbers five, six, seven, eight. Tim Keller in the book Counterfeit Gods, which many of us have been reading along with this, in his epilogue explains how this plays out. He first cites Martin Luther, and then he goes on to say this, we never break the other commandments without first breaking the first one. Why do we fail to love or keep promises or live unselfishly? Of course, the general answer is because we are weak and sinful. But the specific answer in any circumstance is that there is something you feel you must have to be happy, something that is more important to your heart than God himself. We would not lie, which is the ninth commandment, unless we first made something like human approval or reputation or power over others or financial advantage more important and valuable to our hearts than the grace and favor of God. I mean, think about it. Why would I lie to one friend saying, no, no, I never gossiped about you? Because I want their approval. Why did I gossip about them? Because I wanted the other friend's approval. Why do I hide the things that I've done? Because I want to guard my reputation. Something is more important. It's not just I lie because I fell into it. Something is more important than God. I don't trust him to give me my reputation, my approval, my assurances. I need to get it myself, guard it for myself. And so I lie. 
It's why we sin ever. It's because we trust something or desire something more than God. What I want us to do in this process is the, this, what we've been talking about is to stop thinking about Christianity as rules and morality. Stop thinking about Christianity as rules and morality that you have to follow, as if God's out to catch you in the act. God's laws and moral commands are there to guide us like goads, but they also function like a medical examination. They are meant to root out and seek out and find out what is the deep root disease inside of you. When God says, do not lie, do not commit adultery, yes, he wants to guard you in those things, but he also wants to say, what's underneath it? Why do you do these things? What's the real disease in your heart? And it's always better to find the disease in the medical examination rather than in the autopsy. Remember this, God does not want your behavior. He wants your heart because he knows one will follow the other. He's willing to give up everything to have it. And he won't settle until you give him your heart freely of your own will and fully, not holding anything back. Not, God, you can have my relationships, but not my finances. God, you can have my career. I need your help in that, but not my sex life. God, you can have, but not my everything. David Pallison, a psychologist, wrote in an article, Idols of the Heart and Vanity Fair, the most basic question which God poses to each human heart is has something or someone besides Jesus the Christ taken title to your heart's functional trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight? how would we even figure out who or what competes for our heart's love and trust? How would we even know if we have other gods? Keller, in his book at the epilogue, gives us a couple of things to point to. One of the first is our thought life, our thoughts. He basically says, what does your mind go to effortless, effortlessly when you have free time? What do you daydream about? What is it that when, when you're not preoccupied with other things, this is where your brain goes? Are you imagining scenarios for career advancement? Are you imagining all your friends loving you and praising you? Are you imagining your kids' successes and happiness? Are you imagining the beautiful sex life that you're going to step in? What are you imagining when you have that free time? Where your mind goes when it's free to wander Maybe, maybe indicative of what's truly at the center of your heart. A second one he gives us is money. Specifically, what do you spend money on effortlessly? There are some things that we'll be careful with our money, but other things that we'll spend it freely. Some people you might criticize because, oh, they spend all their money on clothes and their beauty. Meanwhile, you spend it on gifts, lavishing them on your friends. Both people have something besides God competing for their heart. Where do you spend money effortlessly? And a third is your emotions especially when your emotions get out of hand. When are you most angry, fearful and anxious, depressed, guilty? Are you driven by deep anxiety at your kids, worried that they're gonna get hurt or not succeed? Do you beat yourself up in guilt over your own failures? 
Do you cycle into anger and depression because you're not sure where you fit in with your friends? Check your thoughts, your money, and your unruly emotions in order to find out who or what competes for our heart's love and trust. We will not fear and follow God until he is actually the God we fear and follow. And we start by discerning who or what really is at the center of our heart. And Solomon gives us a warning. He gives us a warning there in verse 14, the very last sentence. Fear God, keep his commandments, for God will bring every deed into judgment. God will bring every deed into judgment, whether good or evil. Now remember, again, at its root, the good and evil is not just good things I've done, bad things I've done. At its root, it is, is your heart turned towards God or is it turned towards yourself? God wants our hearts, not our behavior. Solomon causes us to dig deeper. He talks about God bringing everything into judgment, even the secret things. That's a scary one, right? When we think of secret things, we think of our secret sins, our hidden sins and vices, like pornography or lying or theft. But I think, I think not only here Solomon, but also Jesus pushes us to dig deeper. Not just your outward actions that nobody else sees, but your internal attitudes, envy, hatred, lust, greed. And I think, I think we can even dig deeper. It's not just the outward actions or our internal motivations. It's the state of our heart. For whom do you really live? God or yourself? It may be so secret you don't even know it yourself. You may not be sure what your true God is. But God knows. And Solomon warns, he is judge. But the good news is that he is also our redeemer. He is the one who forgives us and heals us and gives life to our dead hearts. In John 14, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's actually a really hard thing for us to hear, but Jesus said it. He's a pretty nice guy, right? But he makes the claim, I am the way and the truth and the life. But that's a good news for us. Jesus reveals to us who this God is. We think of God as this one we have to fear, the judge. The one who is the judge, the one we have to fear is Jesus. And Jesus reveals that God does not want to enslave us like our other false gods. He doesn't want to He's not going to disappoint us. He is going to meet our needs because he gives everything for us. He is the truth behind our purpose and identity in life. He is the way to live life, and he is the source of eternal and spiritual life. What he offers, the claim is, is better than money, better than sex, better than chocolate, better than your team winning, better than having all your friends love you, better than getting whatever it is you're after. Jesus is the way to true life. And he's worth bowing down to because he gives everything for our life. 
he rode in triumphant on that Palm Sunday to the praise of the crowds. And by the end of the week, they shouted, crucify him. They wanted a king to give them what they desired. In that instance, it was power, it was victory, the easy life. But he is the savior who instead of giving them what they desired, he offered his back to the whip, his arms to the nail and the cross, his soul to being forsaken by his father until, as he said, it is finished because he wanted to give them what they actually needed. Idolatry, which we've been talking about, in the Old Testament is often referred to as adultery or unfaithfulness. Israel, you have been unfaithful. You have been serving and going after other gods. We, we, according to Scripture, are the unfaithful spouse. But God offers to bear our shame and our judgment and our place to offer us forgiveness and restoration in Jesus. The gospel declares to us, God loves us. He loves us who have rejected him and loved other gods. That's the gospel. God loves us who have rejected him and loved other gods. The way of wisdom, according to Solomon, is to fear and follow God. Our other gods, the other things we turn to, our functional daily saviors, they compete for our devotion. Basically, they compete for our worship. You will worship something, whether God or something else, you will worship something. The only way Keller suggests to root out our false worships is by a deeper and truer worship of something else. This is what he says, idolatry is not just a failure to obey God, which is what we tend to think about. It is a setting of the whole heart on something besides God. This cannot be remedied only by repenting that you have an idol or using willpower to try to live differently. That's what we tend to do. Oh, I need to feel really guilty because I'm bad. Or I'm gonna be much better now. I'm gonna be really disciplined and not turn to these other things. Yes, you need to have willpower, discipline, and repentance, but turning from idols is more than these things. The gospel, he says, calls you to rejoicing and resting. That's worship and belief. Rejoicing and resting in what Jesus has done for you. Jesus must become more beautiful to your imagination, more attractive to your heart than your idol. I find in my own life the way that I process this is that when I sin, I confess my sin to God, and when I've offended somebody else, I confess to them, but then I ask why. Why did I do that? Why did I lash out in anger? Was I needing to control something? Was I protecting my own rights? What's beneath my sin? Yes, confess it to God, but use it as an opportunity to dig deeper. When I have those uncontrollable emotions of anger or depression or anxiety, ask why. Dig deeper. Why is it that I was feeling so angry? Why was I feeling guilty and depressed? What is really at the root of my heart? What am I trusting instead of God? 
Where am I seeking salvation instead of in Jesus Christ? And one of the Psalms that I go to regularly in this process of rooting out my own sin is Psalm 63. Now, Psalm 63 is one where David is praising God, but I sort of flip it because I find that I'm not quite where David is. So Psalm 63, my prayer becomes this. God, may you be my God. May I earnestly seek you. May my soul thirst for you more than it does for anything else. May my flesh faint for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You see, the things that are at the root of our heart, we think about them like water. I must have it. God, may you be that to me. Verse three, because your steadfast love is better than life, my prayer is, may I trust that your steadfast love is better than whatever it is I'm turning to. May my soul be satisfied with you more than these other things I turn to. God, change my heart. I can't change it myself. Increase my desire and love for you. May I find my identity, my joy, my peace in Christ and not in these other things. Christian maturity is not perfection. Christian maturity is the humility to acknowledge the depth of your sinfulness and the willingness to keep digging deeper and deeper into your heart. This is the beginning of Holy Week. Holy Week is a week that is set apart to look at and reflect on the path of Christ to the cross. Christ's love for you and for me. This Good Friday, we're going to have a service, but if you're somewhere else, go to one of the other ones that's near you, maybe near your workplace or one of the other ones that are going on. But if you go to a Good Friday service, don't just have in your head the nails and the pain. Those are true. Go deeper than that. And don't just feel guilty for your vices. Go deeper than that. Dig and examine the idols of your heart, the things at the center of your heart, and lay them before the cross. This week, if you go back historically, is a dark week. It ends on the gallows for Jesus. But on that Friday afternoon, as he breathed his last, Jesus said, It is finished. It is finished. It means whatever you and I have done, whatever we've placed our trust in besides him, whatever our hearts wrestle with, you've been following Jesus for 30 or 40 years and you still wrestle with that same thing. It is finished. It's paid for. It is finished. He's forgiven you. Live into that joy. Because on Sunday morning, we declare he has risen. And there is hope of a new and eternal life, a new and resurrected heart. There is forgiveness. There is redemption. There is resurrection. There is hope for all of us. And it's found in Jesus. Let's pray. God, earlier today we sang, crown him with many crowns. Those are words that I sing, but I do not live out. Each of us needs to examine our hearts. and By the power of your spirit, see the depths of our sinfulness. And yet in the hope of Good Friday 
and Easter, to know that you give life. You are the one who forgives our infidelity. You are the one who is the way and the truth and the life. And in you, we can have life eternal. In your name we pray, amen.